Nuclear Hot Seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, our interview is with Norbert Suchinek founder of the Rio de Janeiro-based Uranium Film Festival, which is coming to the United States for the first time this month, November 2013. More than just a South American Sundance for nuke films, the festival brings together filmmakers from more than 20 countries and is creating an archive of our shared nuclear history unparalleled anywhere in the world. That interview, plus numbnuts of the week, radiation protection tip, and much more, will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, November 5th, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. So much has happened in Japan in the last week that we're going to take this as a narrative so you can follow the unfolding of the story and bring it up to date as to where it is now. Last week, Many major news outlets started reporting a groundswell of demands that TEPCO be removed from the spent fuel transfer operations at Fukushima. Reports came in via, of all places, NASDAQ, BBC, The Guardian, Australian Broadcasting Company, Global Post, Business Week, and even Pravda, all of them saying that TEPCO should not be trusted with this delicate operation that could be endgame for the planet if they get it wrong. As of November 1st, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe Baby of Japan was being told by his own party that Japan's response to Fukushima is failing. Plant operator TEPCO alone is not up to the task of managing the cleanup and decommissioning of the atomic station at Fukushima, according to his own Labor Democratic Party. Sumio Mabuchi, a government point man on the crisis starting in 2011, said, If we allow the situation to continue, it will never be resolved. Richard Bronowski, an adjunct professor at the University of Sydney and Australia's former ambassador to several countries, was asked, How long do you think they have to undertake these measures at Unit 4? He responded, It's not a matter of how long. There's no length involved in this particular accident. It's going to go on almost to infinity, I'm afraid. Nuclear Hot Seat questions the almost in that statement, but be that as it may. He went on to say, it's just a matter of trying to keep your fingers crossed. Very scientific. Whenever TEPCO starts the decommissioning, we're going to have to proclaim an international cross-your-fingers day. Voices, voices, an international groundswell of voices telling TEPCO, It's evil! Don't touch it! David Suzuki, 
An award-winning geneticist, environmentalist, and broadcaster based in Canada said, Fukushima is the most terrifying situation I can imagine. You have got a government that is in total collusion with TEPCO. They're lying through their teeth. The fourth one, meaning spent fuel pool four, has been so badly damaged that the fear is if there's another quake of seven or above that the building will go and then all hell breaks loose. And the possibility of a seven or above quake in the next three years is over 95%. Suzuki went on to say, I've seen a paper which says that if, in fact, the fourth plant goes under in an earthquake and those rods are exposed, it's bye-bye Japan, and everybody on the west coast of North America should evacuate. Now, if that isn't terrifying, I don't know what is. It's evil! Australian broadcasting company's Northeast Asia correspondent, Mark Willisey, said... Even more than a year after admitting that reactors 1, 2, and 3 had suffered meltdowns, TEPCO couldn't tell the public much more. The reactor cores melted down, and nobody knows where the melted fuel is now, said nuclear reactor engineer Hiroake Koida from Kyoto University. Because we do not know where the melted reactor cores are, we don't know the full scale of the contamination of the environment. Here, Corium. Here, Corium. Where the dickens has that Corium gotten to now? When last we visited the Fukushima countdown to Armageddon, TEPCO was planning to start removing nuclear fuel from spent fuel pool 4 as early as November 8. On October 30th, Japanese regulators gave final approval for the removal of the fuel rods to start in November. That did not stop Nuclear Regulatory Chairman Shunichi Tanaka from warning that removing the fuel rods from Unit 4 would be difficult because it's a totally different operation than removing normal fuel rods from a spent fuel pool. They need to be handled extremely carefully and closely monitored. You should never rush or force them out or they may break. He said it would be a disaster if fuel rods were pulled forcibly and damaged or break open when dropped from the pool. Tanaka said, I'm much more worried about this than contaminated water. Channel 4 in the UK said, The worst case scenario is if the fuel assemblies are dropped, which could ultimately lead to a partial meltdown. Voice of America reported, That hydrogen explosion left the inside of the pool littered with debris. TEPCO's first task is to remove the debris. The fuel rods must be kept submerged and must not touch each other or break. Nuclear experts warn that any mishaps could cause an explosion many times worse than in March of 2011. In that, he's referring to the 14,000 Hiroshima bombs worth of radiation stored in the fuel rods in spent fuel pool 4, which still has a lot of radiation left to spend. Now, TEPCO had announced that it planned to empty Unit 4 pool by the end of 2014 and then move on to remove the fuel rods from the other pools at three other wrecked reactors over the next several years. So, for them to complete Unit 4 by the end of 2014, that means they would do it in less than 14 months. By comparison, here's what happened at Three Mile Island. Now, as a reminder... 
The Three Mile Island accident happened in March of 1979. It dealt with one reactor and a partially melted down core. Handling those melted fuel rods did not begin until July of 1984, when the reactor vessel head, meaning the top of the vessel, was removed. In October of 1985, fully six years after the accident, was when fuel removal first began. And it took almost four and a half years until January of 1990 for the fuel removal to be completed. That's an intact reactor and a partially melted core. By comparison, at Fukushima, in spent fuel pool 4, there are 1,533 fuel rods, and TEPCO insists that they can do the job in less than 14 months. No computerized system and damaged fuel rods. What are those people thinking? So into this fray, who should ride atop his... Well, I don't know. It was probably something jet-powered and really spiffy. But... That's right. U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz. He said last Thursday, October 31st, that he expects deepening cooperation with Japan. Quote, We expect the relationship in the area of decommissioning between TEPCO and our national laboratories to expand and deepen in the coming years. How about the coming minutes? He went on, We all have a direct interest in seeing that the next steps are taken well and efficiently and safely. You think? The U.S. is ready to assist our partners with this daunting task. Ah, but not without some really big strings attached. We'll get to that in a moment. Among the statements by Energy Secretary Moniz, On Friday, I made my first visit to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. It is stunning that one can see firsthand the destructive force of the tsunami even more than two and a half years after the tragic events. Don't you check Facebook? You could have seen the pictures there. From the beginning, the United States has worked to support the government in Japan with the immediate response efforts and in recovery, decommissioning, and cleanup activities. What? Did I miss that part of the story? Moniz explained. The Department of Energy sent a team of 34 experts and more than 17,000 pounds of equipment. What were they, sacks of cement? Zeolite? That's an awfully strange way to refer to equipment in pounds. What did it consist of? And how long were those people there? And 34 people. Who were they? What did they do? How long did they stay? You also sent the USS Ronald Reagan and all those young people who got nuked by the radiation and still have no recourse for the illnesses that have come from it. But that's another story. Moniz went on, The Department of Energy, our national labs, and U.S. companies will continue to offer our experience and capabilities to assist the Japanese government and TEPCO. Continue to offer experience? I thought you were holding it hostage for them to sign away their right to sue manufacturers, meaning us, the United States, our corporations. Then he said, 
The United States and Japan created the Bilateral Commission to strengthen our strategic and practical engagement on civil nuclear research and development, Fukushima cleanup, emergency response, nuclear safety, regulatory matters, and nuclear security and nonproliferation. And we look forward to the commission meeting next week in Washington, D.C. And you'll be contacting Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education for his input as of when? Didn't think so. Only friends and allies who believe in nuclear are allowed. Now, all of that was as of November 1st. On November 2nd, TEPCO accepted Washington's offer to help with the cleanup and decommissioning of Fukushima. TEPCO's president said that he had high hopes that Japan will benefit from U.S. experience and expertise at Fukushima Daiichi. However, the fit hit the shan on November 3rd, the very next day, because Japan will receive international help with the cleanup at Fukushima once it joins an existing treaty that defines liability for accidents at nuclear plants. Sell your birthright for a mess of pottage, guys. You're not going to be able to sue anybody. The Convention on Supplementary Compensation for Nuclear Damage assigns accident liability to plant operators, meaning TEPCO, rather than equipment and technology vendors, thus taking off the hook General Electric, whose nuclear reactors were there, Mitsubishi, and a whole host of the other nuclear industry infrastructure boys club. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe Baby, Trade Minister Toshimitsu Motegi, and other officials showed an eagerness during meetings last week for expertise from abroad to decommission the Fukushima plant, Muniz said. Such help will be easier to secure once Japan ratifies the treaty. Talk about international nuclear blackmail. Mm-mm-mm. Muniz went on, Certainly Prime Minister Abe and Minister Motegi both emphasized the importance of moving on this in 2014. It is to a large extent driven by their openness and their desire to get as much international help as they can. Wait a minute. This openness and desire for international help was non-existent. If you'll recall, Prime Minister Shinzo... At Fukushima, let me assure you that the situation is under control. Abe, baby, wasn't quite as open just two weeks ago. But now it appears somebody's gotten through that pretty little head, and he's understanding that he needs international cooperation and has to sell his soul, or whatever's left of it, in order to receive it. According to a report put together by XSKF, The treaty appears to allow U.S. companies to not be held liable if their technology or work fails. It's the 21st century version of the get-out-of-jail-free card. So on the heels of all of that international manipulation to get Japan on the hook and U.S. corporations off the hook, as of November 4th, the decision was made to not move ahead immediately on the removal of the fuel rods. And what was the reason given for this? The Government Safety Agency wants tests conducted. Tests! They don't want to go in cold. They want to check it out first. The nerve of those people. The test was requested 
by the Japan Nuclear Energy Safety Organization. It has also urged TEPCO to have its work evaluated by a group of Japanese and overseas experts, here's the rub, formed by the International Research Institute for Nuclear Decommissioning, a Tokyo-based organization founded by Japanese governmental agencies, nuclear facilities, manufacturers, and electric power companies. Boy, are they ever going to be objective, don't you think? So right now, TEPCO and Japan have put Armageddon on hold for at least two weeks while they test out whatever they're going to test out. Kudos and a Nuclear Hot Seat Jellyfish Award for Nuclear Bravery goes to Taro Yamamoto, who gave a letter to the Emperor of Japan during a garden party. Oh, it was such a breach of protocol and so wonderfully well done. In this letter, he asked Emperor Akihito to help save the children who are still living under dreadfully high radioactivity in Fukushima. The emperor took the letter, but is a figurehead and doesn't have any real power. Still, symbolically, he could do something, perhaps. There has been massive criticism throughout Japan against Yamamoto for having done this. Amazing that they would critique someone trying to stand up for the children of Fukushima instead of putting their anger and their critique against Tepco and Shinzo Abe Baby. You're criticizing Yamamoto for being rude? There is nothing ruder than a nuclear accident. And what's even worse, what it is invisibly doing to your own future generations. Which leads us to a truly outrageous nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound awake. So what is the current brainstorm out of someone somewhere within the nuclear establishment in Japan? It is an offer for pregnant women and their children, if they decide to go back to Fukushima, to receive from Fukushima Prefecture a new, very good house without payment. Move back to Fukushima, expose yourself to radiation, and you and your unborn child, who's now exposed to so much radiation it may not get born, and if it does get born, it's going to have some really bad problems, you get a free house. Woohoo! You know, unless you're a brain-dead crack addict... What mother in her right mind would do that to her unborn children? And who in Japan is so emotionally and spiritually beyond tone-deaf bankrupt to propose this as a rational idea? Evil. Ugly. Totally disconnected from reality. Sociopathic thinking. And that's why this scheme is this week's None that's out of week. More bad news because this is the week of CNN flogging Pandora's promises. Man, they can't get enough on the air to bolster this sick little excuse for a, put it in quotes, documentary. What it is is spin piece and propaganda positing that former environmentalists, oh, excuse me, environmentalists who formerly were against nuclear are now in favor of nuclear because it's the only way to get away from global warming. <laughs> global warming works either way. And if they are in favor of nuclear now, they are 
former environmentalists. The good news from our side is that all of the noise we have made with the phone calls, the petitions, the direct contacts to programming at CNN have yielded some results for our side. Michael Brune, the executive director of the Sierra Club, appeared on CNN New Day debating Robert Stone, the director of Pandora's Promise. Unfortunately, his appearance was scheduled to take place at 8.40 a.m. on Monday, November 4th. 8.40 in the morning on the East Coast. Think people might miss it because they're going to work? Think it might be a little bit too early for other parts of the country, like 5.40 in the morning in California? Oh, if you missed it, just catch it on YouTube. However, on Thursday, November 7, New Age environmentalist Michael Schellenberger of the Breakthrough Institute, another one of those pro-nuke, former anti-nuke environmentalists, who's now a pro-nuke, former environmentalist. Anyway, he's going to debate Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. It gets no better than Kevin. So things are heating up, but we have gotten our voice in. Heads up that Pandora's Promise is going to be airing on Thursday, November 7 at 9 p.m. Get ready to post comments on news sites, on CNN's site, on any of the blogs that are out there. This is going to be fast and furious. We should have our talking points ready. If you need to know what they are, go to Beyond Nuclear and click on the tab at the top, Pandora's False Promises. It will lead you to all the information you need to have some very informed and sharply worded letters to the editor. In the American Northwest, the Columbia Generating Station, a nuclear power plant in Richland, Washington, is one of the Northwest's only nuclear power plants, and it has now been shown to be more at risk to earthquakes than previously thought. Two new reports issued by Physicians for Social Responsibility in Oregon and Washington and sent to NRC Chairwoman Allison McFarlane show that no seismic structural upgrades have been made at the CGS in the past 30 years, despite geologic evidence which has dramatically increased our awareness of the seismic risks at this site. The reports concluded that the earthquake standards set for CGS are at least 300% lower than should be required. And just to make matters worse, the plant there is a GE boiling water reactor, the same model as at Fukushima. Let's hope Susanna Frame from King 5 News in Seattle goes and gets them. And just a little bit of international news. I don't consider Japan's news to be international anymore. It's just Japan. But in Switzerland... The Mühlberg nuclear power plant will permanently shut down in 2019 instead of its planned shutdown in 2022 because of, I love the euphemisms, uncertainty surrounding political and regulatory trends, according to the operators BKWFMB Energy. The company said that it could only justify making investments in the plant's continued operation for the next six years instead of until its earlier proposed shutdown in 2022. Here we go with the economics. Nukes do not make financial sense, and companies are starting to get it and bail out. The facility did have an unlimited duration operating license, scary in and of itself. 
Hopefully nothing terrible will happen before it gets decommissioned in 2019, when it turns into a nuclear waste depository for the next 240,000 years. And Bloomberg published a really good report on the protests at Kudankulam and why India should not buy what Japan is selling, meaning nuclear technology. One quote, The protesters at Kudankulam have much to be worried about. He's referring to the Kudankulam nuclear reactor, which has had as many as tens of thousands of people protesting simultaneously. In recent years, some of the crucial Russian suppliers of components to the plant have been detained in Russia and indicted for shoddy business practices. According to A. Gopala Krishnan, former chair of India's Atomic Energy Regulatory Board, equipment, components, and materials of substandard quality have already been installed in the plant. Their, quote, deficiencies and defects are dormant today, but these very same shortcomings may cause such parts to catastrophically fail when the reactor is operated for some time. We'll have a link to this article up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. Now on to this week's interview. Hey, we've got our own film festival. Did you know that? The Uranium Film Festival is about all aspects of the nuclear issue and is the brainchild of today's guest, Festival General Director Norbert Suchinek. A native of Germany, Suchinek is a journalist, author, filmmaker, and activist living in Rio de Janeiro. He shares with Nuclear Hot Seat listeners how the festival got started, his vision for an international nuclear film archive, and how you, yes you, can get your film into the 2014 festival. Norbert Sukanek, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hello. How did the Uranium Film Festival begin? It's a very long story. It started 2006 when I was part of the Indigenous World Uranium Summit in, uh, in Windel Rock. There, uh, I represented the Brazilian communities and I discovered there, well, there are many good films about uranium mining, about nuclear power, but nobody can see it. And most of the films are in English or German, and there were no, not one film in Portuguese except mine. So I think, uh, well, there's a big gap, and I want to bridge it. And the best way to get films into the public is by a film festival. So you were the founder of the Uranium Film Festival. In fact, it's it's me and, and Marcia Gomez de Oliveira. She's a social scientist here in Rio de Janeiro. And together we created, when I came back from the uh, Indigenous World Uranium Summit, when I came back, we created the idea, yes. So that was 2006 you attended. And the festival got started as of 2011, was it? Exactly. We we started the first festival, well, we held the first festival here in Rio, May 2011. But of course, to start it, you have to start one year before, because first you have to make announcement so that all the filmmakers who are interested to send the films can send the films. So we started the festival in, in reality 2010. And about one month before Fukushima, 
we already had received 70 films about uranium mining, nuclear power, atomic bombs. And then Fukushima happened. Well, you must know, I always thought accidents like Chernobyl should never be forgotten or forgotten, so that we should not uh, repeat the same errors. And then, well, happened Fukushima. What has been the change in either the submissions or the process that you went through since Fukushima? Have there been more films? Have there been more focused on Japan? Of course, after Fukushima, we have received much more films about nuclear power, about the Fukushima accident, of course, of course. The Fukushima accident has the result, of course, in the production of more films about nuclear power in, in Japan. What I find astounding is that this year it was listed that 150 films were submitted from 20 different countries around the world. That seems to be an amazingly high number. Is that something you expected when you started this? When I started this, I did expect really to receive many films, but not as much films and in, in, already in the third year. And we are still a festival without big support. You must know, most of the festivals have awards. You can win three, $5,000 if you send a film to the festival. We are still a very poor festival. We have a special award, the Yellow Oscar, but it's just a symbolic award. We cannot uh, give financial support to the filmmakers. But still, they send the films to us. And that's amazing, and I like it. And still they're making the films. Um, and often they risk their health and their jobs to make those very important films. I find it interesting that in your statement about the festival that's on the website, you say that it is to inform the public from a neutral position. How do you interpret that neutral position? I mean, would you carry something like Pandora's Promise, for example, which is so outrageously pro-nuclear? Well, first, I haven't seen it yet because they didn't send the film to us. We have a committee of five persons. It's the director of the uh, Museum of Modern Art Cinema in Rio de Janeiro. We have a nuclear engineer from the University of Niteroi, University of Rio de Janeiro. So we have a team of five people that made the selection. And the festival is, in fact, neutral. The film is not. Of course, every film is based on, on the view of the filmmaker. But in general, our festival is neutral, and we would accept also films in favor of nuclear power. Until now, I must say, we have received oh God, hundreds of films. From these hundreds of films, I guess two or three films are, well, I wouldn't say neutral, but they are not against really nuclear power. But 99% of all the films we received show that nuclear power is dangerous and a huge problem for humanity. Give us an idea of the range of subject matter that is covered by the films that you receive. It starts by uranium mining. We have films about the nuclear power problem, about nuclear power plants. We have films about nuclear waste from nuclear power plants. We have films about the first nuclear bombs. 
We have films about nuclear bomb tests in the Pacific. We have films about radioactive contamination in the environment. We have films about radioactive contaminated food. We have films about uh, radioactive accidents. You know, we have the huge accidents, Chernobyl and now Fukushima. But we also had so-called small radioactive accidents, like in Goiania, 1987, in center of Brazil, where a part of a city was contaminated by radioactive cesium coming from a forgotten radioactive source from a hospital. What types of films do you get? Are they all documentaries, or do they take other forms as well? No, there are other forms as well. Documentaries are important, but you cannot reach all the people with documentaries. If you want to reach, really, the whole population, if you want to teach something important, you must use every form of, of cinema. You must use comedies, thriller. You must use uh, fiction or love stories. We have a beautiful film called Atomic Ivan. It's a love story in a nuclear power plant. And this film teaches you a lot about nuclear power. Drama is often the best way to get the point across. I know that China Syndrome was a major factor in supporting the anti-nuclear movement coming out right before Three Mile Island, but then playing extensively after Three Mile Island. Exactly. And what countries have been submitting films to the festival? Well, we have all continents. Most of the films at the moment still are from USA, Australia, Germany. Then we have films from Italy, Japan, India. This year we received the first film from Iran and the first film from, well, from a filmmaker from Iraq living in France. And we have we received the first film, the first two films from Israel. Well, I'm looking forward to see more films from Latin America and more films from Africa and Asia in the next years to come. It is amazing to understand exactly the extent to which fighting against nuclear and putting the information out is an international movement. And you have done a tremendous job with the ingathering of all this information. Now I understand that for the first time you're going to be bringing the film festival, the Uranium Film Festival, to the United States. It's going to be in New Mexico. Tell us how that came about. It's because the film festival started in my mind 2006 in New Mexico or in Arizona, in Window Rock. So I always wanted to bring it back to the roots and now this year, it's the third year of the festival, now we, well, I can bring it back to where it started, in Middle Rock, where I saw for the first time, for example, the film The Return of Navajo Boy. It's a beautiful film about the uranium issue, about the, the problems that the Navajo Nation faces because of uranium mining. And in fact, when, when I saw this film, I thought, wow, I have to bring this film to the world. And so it was the return of Naho Boy that was the first film that we translated into Portuguese. Wow. So in terms of getting the film festival to 
the southwest of the United States. It's going to be in Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and Window Rock starting in late November this year, 2013. How many films are going to be there? At the moment, we have about 40 films listed. The selection for the films of the films for Albuquerque and Santa Fe is already done. We are still in the process to select the films for the Window Rock screenings because the festival with rock is a project together with the local communities there. And so I let them select the films. So there are going to be different films shown at each of these venues? Yes. Where else in the United States do you either have bookings set, or are you working to get the films shown? After New Mexico and Arizona, we will travel or we will bring the film festival in February to Washington, D.C., and then to New York City. These are the two next big stations for the festival. And what are the dates that you have if they are set? The dates are already set in Washington. It's three days in February, February 10, 11, and 12. And then we will have the festival in New York City in February 14, 15, 16. The festival in Washington, D.C. will be held in the cinema of the German Goethe Institute. And in New York City, we will have the festival in the Pavilion Cinema in Brooklyn. What about Hollywood? Has there been any connection or any attempt to bring the festival to the greater Los Angeles area and the entertainment industry? Oh, great. Hollywood. Hollywood is, is a dream. I wish I could bring the festival to Hollywood next year, too. We already have some contacts, but we must have strong local partners. We must have uh, a good cinema in Hollywood. They want to be partner of us, and we are still looking for it. Well, if there's anything Nuclear Hot Seat can do to help, we are based in Los Angeles. I still have a few connections within the entertainment industry. Whatever we can do, you've got it. Okay, great. So you are in the boat? (laughs) So in terms of the filmmakers themselves, what has been the benefit to them of showing their films at the Uranium Film Festival? Well, they got a lot of publicity for example, all the films of the festival, of course, they are listed in our website, and we have every day about 600 visitors of the website. 600 a day? 600 a day. That's fantastic. That, that's a lot. That's really a lot. And uh, some of the films we, we screened during the festivals are already ordered by other film festivals. I receive every day one or two emails from other film festivals asking for films that I should make contacts for the filmmakers with them or that I should send to them. In addition, we have uh, TV stations that are interested now in the films we screened. Are you contacted by filmmakers who are in the process, who have not yet completed their films, and perhaps reach out for you for either advice or finding out what your deadlines are, anything at all in terms of contact with not yet completed films? Yes, that happens regularly. And what are these people asking for? 
normally they ask you when is the next deadline and maybe if I could extend the deadline that they can send the film still. Our film festival is open for every film that is produced at any time because the second advantage or second goal of the film festival is, is to create an archive about nuclear films. We call it the Yellow Archives. It's something for humanity. At the moment in our archives we have more than 200 films. But in future there will be maybe 1,000, 2,000 films about nuclear power that we can show in, in schools, in, in universities. We have to deal with the problem of radioactivity, nuclear power, nuclear waste, for the next 100, 200,000 years. We have to teach our children, our grandchildren, we have to teach the next generations about the dangers of nuclear power. So how can we do it? At the moment, the best way is by film. And so we want to have a huge archive of nuclear films that we can show our grandchildren. This is an enormous undertaking. How are you funded? Every enormous undertaking, every long way starts with the first step. We are at the moment at the first step. We are bringing it to the public and we hope that we receive one day funding for our film festival. At the moment, we are doing everything with freelance people without financial support. But of course, it's, it's a very big issue. Well, nuclear power is a billion dollar issue. If we could have just a few 100,000, we could make a very good festival. At the moment, we are, everybody is working only freelance. In other words, nobody's being paid. Our website designer is being paid by about $100 per month. So that's all. So it's an in-kind contribution for the most part. You know, we do our nuclear work on a bake sale budget compared with a multi-billion dollar industry. It's amazing that we can go as far as we can. Let me ask you, how can people donate if they wish to support this festival? They can click on our website, Radium Film Festival, and we have a support site, and there you will have the information of our bank accounts and just make a donation. It can be $1 or 2 or 2000 or whatever. Just keep adding and, zeros at the end as long as it's in front of the decimal point. Yes. And what is the deadline for the 2014 Uranium Film Festival? The deadline to be part of the International Rain Film Festival of Rio de Janeiro and to, to have a chance to win the Yellow Oscar of 2014 is January 2014. Is that January yeah. 1 or January 30? January 30. If you had a final message to leave our listeners with, something you wanted them to know either about the festival or philosophy about nuclear, anything at all, what would that be? Oh, that's a big question. The message is nuclear power and radioactivity is an issue for everybody. It's an issue for every politician, for every teacher, for every citizen in every place in the world because everybody is 
war will be affected in, and in very different ways. Fukushima, it happened in Japan, and the west coast of United States of America is affected. You have X-ray machines all over the world. What will you do if the X-ray machine became waste? Who is taking care of all those thousands of thousands of X-ray machines? The accident in Brazil, the worst radioactive accident in Brazil that happened 1987 was because of a cancer treatment machine with 19 grams of cesium-137 inside. This uh, machine became scrap metal because nobody controlled it. And there were a few, more than 1,000 people were contaminated by this cesium-137 in Brazil. And about 800 survivors of this accident are still demanding compensation by the Brazilian government. And have they been successful yet? Not yet. They are still suffering. They are still suffering, and, and but some receive a kind of pension, about $100 per month, but it, it doesn't pay the, how do you say, the, the medicaments to survive. And you must know, the same accident happened in the year 2000 in Thailand, in a place close to Bangkok. And nearly the same accident happened 2010 in a quarter of New Delhi. And it can happen in the next quarter, in the next neighborhood, somewhere of Los Angeles or in Nairobi, somewhere else. It's not only the nuclear waste from the nuclear power plants we have to take care for. Take care for. We have to take care for all the nuclear waste we produce in our hospitals, too. Norbert, if you had a vision of the impact of the Uranium Film Festival on the future of nuclear what would that be? If everybody is well aware of the dangers of nuclear power, I think all the governments will phase out nuclear power. And of course, the film festival will go a long way to supporting those international voices speaking out with clarity and with great information. Especially the Iranian Film Festival is supporting all those brave filmmakers that are producing so good and important films about that issue. Norbert Sukanek, I want to thank you so much for what you are doing to bring the voices of the filmmakers of the world to the fore. And I want to thank you for having been this week's guest on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much for the interview. That was Norbert Sukanek, General Director of the Uranium Film Festival. You can learn all about the festival, as well as how you can purchase tickets for the November showings in New Mexico and Arizona, by going to his website, uraniumfilmfestival.org. We'll have the radiation protection tip in just a moment, but first, I want to remind you, Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the news that is so hard to get anywhere else. Nuclear news, radiation protection tips, activist opportunities, what our side is doing to grow this movement. And, of course, the numbnuts of the week, the NRC Doc Report, and much, much more. So if you'd like to help, go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, stay on the homepage, scroll down, click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help, know it's really appreciated, especially since these days the program is growing in popularity 
and that means my bandwidth charges are going through the roof. It's not a bad problem to have, but your help in meeting the costs would be really appreciated. Now for the radiation protection tip. You know, I've got to be honest. Nothing can completely protect you from the impact of radiation. There's no magic bullet. What you can do, however, is keep your body as healthy as possible, which means making it as alkaline as possible. This is also suggested in some holistic protocols for people who are dealing with cancer. The foods that make the body acidic include lots of what we've been raised to think of as the good stuff. Sugar, dairy, animal protein, processed foods, alcohol, most fats. You can Google to find out the specifics. There are lots of lists out there. It won't protect you from a direct assault by radiation, but it will help in fighting off the impact on your body slowing down, delaying any impact that it might have. And you'll feel better, too. So take care of yourself. After all, especially if you're anti-nuke, we need every last one of you for as long as we can keep you around. Activist shout-outs. All of you! Every last one of you! You're all doing a great job! Kudos to Kevin Camps for his debate regarding Pandora's promise on CNN. It will be showing up on Thursday, November 7 at 7.45 p.m. And if you're beyond that date, I know it's going to be posted all over the anti-nuke internet. For those of you listening to Nuclear Hot Seat after that date, I will have a link up on the November 12 episode, number 125, so you can watch one of our best eviscerate one of the numbnuts. I'm still looking for contacts to John Stewart because I am his nuclear pundit. If you or someone you know can get John and me together for a schmooze, a bagel, a schmear, a little kibitz, send your leads to info at nuclearhotseat.com. No connection, no matter how obscure, is too far away for it to possibly yield the connection that will pay off. So here's today's final thought. Well, we've made noise, and it is working. We yelled at CNN regarding Pandora's promise and got at least some representation on the cable network to point out the manipulative loopholes in that propaganda piece. They weren't planning on giving it to us by themselves. We forced their hand. We raised the alarm about TEPCO's incompetence and the world-ending possibilities of a single mistake in their plans to begin removing fuel rods from spent fuel pool 4. And lo, the start of that operation is currently delayed while the world manipulates itself into a buffer zone between TEPCO and Armageddon. Even the fact that the world is speaking out about the need for an international coalition of countries, engineers, technicians, experts to plan out the safest, sanest actions to take before anyone does anything at Fukushima? That's languaging. That's concept that came directly from us with a special shout-out to Arnie Gunderson. Kudos to Dr. Caldicott and Arnie Gunderson and Alexei Yablokov and the others for delivering their letter to Ban Ji-moon at the United Nations. To Harvey Wasserman's petition to the UN circulated on beyondnuclear.org and moveon.org. Together, these sites got over 105,000 international signatures. 
and to all of you who called your senators or representatives or wrote to newspapers or posted comments online or forwarded information to your email contacts and demanded that attention must be paid, we were all of us part of making a great and mighty noise. And the world heard us. Not all of it, not as loudly as we might like. It's not over by a long shot. We're going to have to make more noise more often, and put our agendas out in front of the world again and again and again. But right now, take a moment and realize, we did something here. We made a difference. In quantum physics, the definition of a quantum leap is not something enormous. It is the smallest possible change that can extrapolate out into a much larger change, the leap as it were. A rock in the river, a stone in your shoe, the moat in God's eye. We make that tiny change, and over time, it becomes a mighty shift in consciousness. That's what it takes to make a movement. People putting new ideas and new considerations in the path of societal assumption and help others to do this as well. That's what we did. That's what we're doing and continuing to do. Quantum leap. It all comes down to the little shifts, the little changes. Every phone call, every email, every signature, it all counts. Way to go, everyone. Well done. Now go do something fun to celebrate. You deserve it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 5th, 2013. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from ENEnews.com, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Bloomberg, Australian Broadcasting Company, Wall Street Journal, Kyoto, Euronews, NHK, Science Magazine, Associated Press, Channel 4 in the UK, NuclearNews.net, Huffington Post, Energy.gov, RT.com, XSKF, Japan Times, Kyoto News, Fukuleaks.org, 3SAT German Public TV, Shukan Gendai, Asia Pacific Journal, Asahi Shimbun, Reuters, Canadian Broadcasting, UC Santa Cruz, NukeFree.org, King 5 News in Seattle, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Theme song sung and arranged by Marilee Weber. It looks like Weber, but it's Weber. Accompanied by John Bernard, Recorded at Winslow Court Studio with Craig Parker Adams as our engineer. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. Comment on our website or at Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. I grant permission to reuse as long as you provide proper attribution, website, and email. That would be me, nuclearhotseat.com, and info at. Going out today on music, When Will Peace Come by Kenneth Moore. Music provided and permission granted by the author. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications.
the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. We did it once. We can do it again. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.
hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.